So, hello, this is Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. And today we're speaking with Howard Gayton, a man who just last week walked from the romantic confines of Slough or somewhere. <laughs> Officially, we walked from uh, London to Glasgow. Yeah. Actually, we walk from Henley on Thames to Edinburgh. Henley on Thames um, to Edinburgh, walking all the way up yeah. the island of Britain in a an esoteric pilgrimage, stroke, direct action mm. oriented on the COP twenty six summit in Glasgow, where our great leaders got together to pretend to be <laughs> doing something about climate change. Yeah. Would you say that's a, a fair? <laughs> that's a pretty fair. Best summation of it, I think. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you about this because this is contemporary practice. Arguably, you could talk about it as contemporary religious practice, mm-hmm. or at least for want of a better word, right? Spiritual yeah, practice. Yeah. Aimed at direct political engagement, mm-hmm. aimed at making something happen. So you can also talk about it in terms of magic, maybe. And uh, drawing very much on a kind of old school style of ritual. Yeah. Tell us about this uh, this weird pilgrimage you went on, like how it, it came about and what was what yeah, it was so about. It was it was dreamed up by uh, a woman called uh, Jolie Booth, who is a theatre performer, a street theatre performer, and uh, works within the very much influenced by fooling as a, her theatre sort of genre, and it was dreamed up. Last year, when she did a, a pilgrimage down the uh, Michael and Mary line, which is east to west, starts up in Norfolk, I think, and then ends up in Cornwall. Hmm. Runs right through here. Yeah, it runs right through here. It runs through the Dartmoor. And in that, her and the person she was um, doing this this pilgrimage with said, we should do something aimed towards COP. Why don't we do the other line, which is the... Um, Ellen and Balinus line, which intersects with the Michael and Mary line um, at Uffington. And let's get a group of people together and let's develop some theatre for COP, a piece of theatre, and on the way we will do ceremonies at chakra points along this line up um, Albion, basically. Um, So I got involved in it because I was a WhatsApp site to do with fooling, which is my one of my theatrical practices, just had this this advert going. Do you want to do this? You know, do you, do, and then, you know, well, yeah, of course, you know, of course, that's what I want to do. That I want to uh, do something that is very ceremonial or ritual or spiritual. Is also theatrical because that's my you know these are the things that I like to bring together. Uh, and you know, activist as well. You know, it's, it seems I think for a lot of us there's that thing of what can we do about this? We don't know. So. Let's do something. Let's put one foot in front of another. It's something, you know. And so that's that combination of those three things. And uh, before we get into the kind of the esoteric side of it, I wonder if you can just describe the sort of daily routine and, and who you were walking with and what it was like walking from Henley-on-Thames to Edinburgh in the autumn. So not in the yeah. most... Not, you're basically walking to the colder part of the country while it was getting colder. <laughs> mad. Yeah, what a mad thing to do. It should have been the other way around, shouldn't it? Yeah, so, well, the first month actually was very warm. We had unseasonably warm weather, like yeah. really warm at times. Yeah, like so the, the climate change levels of... Yeah, exactly, <laughs> which is actually quite pleasant. Um, yeah, so there was a group of around about 20 to 30 of us. It, it, it varied. There was a core group of about 20 that went all the way. Jolie and uh, Scarlett had actually started in the Isle of Wight. They'd done the first ceremony there because that's the first chakra point. And then uh, we'd met everybody else in London, took a train out to Henley, and then we walked up the spine. So the, the daily, as it turned, you know, we, we discovered it, the daily thing was you'd get up, I, I'd get up about 6.30 in the morning so that I could do my qigong and tai chi and have breakfast without a throng of people descending on it. Uh, we had a mainly camped um and then we had a a, a stove, you know, a kitchen tent, a sort of marquee, mm. which had the gas stove and things in. Uh, so at around about 7.30, that got pilgrims descending on it to have breakfast. 
and then we'd have a, a circle to discuss logistics or to check in you know, emotionally depending on what we needed the aim being to decamp and then to be off ready for about 10 o'clock so we'd set off about 10 we had support vehicles so we didn't actually have to carry our tent stuff which was a relief in the end because we at first we thought we'd going to have to but we didn't have to do that because yeah. um, so we had to carry just day packs and things uh, I think that would have been quite a lot to carry that all the way up I think most of us were expecting to do it but so we'd set off and then we'd walk for 10-15 miles a day um, at first that was quite difficult because we weren't all that fit ready for it even people had done training and the first week you get terrible blisters mm. um, and you, you ache like mad and then it got a, got a little bit easier but then we hit started to hit the uh, hills so just it got easier from kind of just generally walking then we got the, the hills of um, the low hills of kind of Lancashire and then the lakes and then Scottish really proper mountains as we got up so although it was only in a, in the end it turned out you know you'd think you could when we started walking 10 miles seemed a lot and then by about 4 or 5 weeks in walking 10 miles was just like well that's your morning walk it was pretty easy uh, unless there were hills involved and then we'd get back into a camp which would be all sorts of places we stayed in the grounds of stately homes in campsites some wild camping in Scotland and it varied as to what that meant a campsite could just be a field and we dug a toilet tent it could be a place with showers I mean showers became like oases in the desert at some point there was one point when I hadn't had a shower for 10 days and then there's a shower and it's just unbelievably good Um, and we'd set up camp so there'd be some people that would volunteer each day to be on camp duty so they would go with the camp set up the camp then the walkers would arrive in at around about four, half four, set up camp. People would volunteer to cook, would eat, and then they would be sort of sitting around the fire. And that would involve uh, either a lot of singing, a lot of music, sometimes sh- sort of sharing in circles either how we were or doing small ceremonies of how we were or logistics of what was going to happen the, the next day. So the, the, the motley crew... That was doing this pilgrimage. Wow. I'm imagining a bunch of kind of vaguely neo-pagan hippie types <laughs> who are quite into their ley lines and uh, probably have frequented Glastonbury at some point in their lives, if not live there or Totnes, perhaps. How accurate is that? <laughs> It's kind of both very accurate and completely inaccurate. Okay. Good. So yeah, there were some some people that were very into all of those aspects. The whole pilgrimage itself was very much along those lines that we were following a ley line, um, but we were also diverting off to follow the, the masculine and feminine energy lines that, that went yeah. up. And the the crew of people there were some performers, myself, sort of performer, academic. Um, there was a dancer who was also a PhD student who's practiced research. There were people from XR, sort of that kind of XR, more just domestic. They'd, artists, uh, care workers. Yeah, I mean, kind of all sorts. There, there weren't. I wouldn't say the the image you give of that is of kind of like hippies. I I don't think we. I don't think it quite goes into that new age hippie mm. thing. I think it was more even even the people that were into those things. It was a, a kind of deeper understanding of that, and there are a lot. You know, we were quite a lot of us also have a sort of slight scepticism to that. You know, a healthy scepticism of like, okay, what do we really believe in? What it, it was pagan, however, it was also non-denominational. So yeah. we were constantly trying not to define precisely what what we were doing. So our ceremonies would always be. You know, whatever you bring to it, you can refer to what I think of Great Spirit as in whatever way you want. Mother, the goddess. It, it it didn't matter. It was just this sort of coming together around some understanding of, of wanting to connect ceremonially to this land, particularly to the UK. Yeah. Um, that is actually quite off authentically pagan 
if you want to, if by authentically pagan we mean pre-monotheist Mediterranean vernacular religion, like not in exactly those terms, but people weren't so hung up on what you call your gods, but they were into doing ceremonies. Mm, right. that if you can talk about religion in, in the ancient world before Christianity, you hardly need ever to talk about belief. You just talk about like mythology, stories, and rituals. Right. right? That's all that that's all we have. And, you know, occasional other stuff like curses or love spells and things like this. So that I, I feel that that's pretty pagan. And I wonder for you as someone who works in theater uh, and has been kind of exploring the realm where theater enters into the esoteric mm. altered states of consciousness realm and, and um, you know, enters into the alternate reality side of things and is now doing a PhD on that very subject. What do you make of the relationship between performance and theater and ritual or ceremony? What are the links? These are all different words, performance, mm. theater, ceremony, but they all have obviously some overlap. Yeah. What is the overlap and what's the differences? Or are there no so, differences? Well, the no, I think there are. I think one, one of the things that maybe starts to pick that apart was our ceremonies in our ceremonies we would go to the four directions and call the four directions in the spirits of the four directions or the four directions in quite specifically uh, this changed a bit because we were evolving the ceremonies as, as it went on yeah and the performances started with that and one of the things I pointed out to the group was there's a difference between performance and a ceremony you don't go along to performance expecting it to be a ceremony because that that's alienating for a lot of your audience so in the end, what happened with the performances, we started to use the four elements as the launching point for the performance, just our experience of those elements. So instead of specifically calling in, in a ceremonial way, the ceremonies that we had been doing fed into the performance, and we understood them in that way, but we weren't being explicit about that in the performance. So there's already a slight difference there is what are you doing in these things what is what is the role of performance and that part of it I think for me was that what we were going through was a pilgrimage and that's an internal process as much as anything something that Jolie said very often is that as a pilgrim you're an archetype you are a pilgrim you you have certain expectations from outside that people look at and go wow it's amazing you're doing that and from inside, we're going, well, I'm just getting up and walking and my legs ache and I've got blisters. You know, it's not that romantic. But from the outside, it kind of is. Uh, and what, the perform- what you're trying to do in performance is take those experiences and find a way of, instead of being internal with them, be external. Yeah. Give them out. So I think that's, that's one of the differences I found with performance and ceremonies. Ceremony is sort of enclosing, in a way, and performance is... Ex-closing. That's not a word, but yeah, <laughs> is that? I'm going to use that yeah. as a word. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's turning. It's trying to turn that experience out to give, to give a, a, a public that doesn't uh, hasn't been through your experience some notion of that experience. It's interesting because in again in antiquity, the golden age of drama in fifth century Athens, when you had you know yeah. Sophocles and Euripides and Aeschylus all writing and performing their stuff, and let's not forget um, Aristophanes. Aristophanes. Yeah with his wonderful toilet humor. Um, all of that, including the wonderful toilet humor and the boner jokes, is the sacred festival of Dionysus. Right. So that's all ritual. Mm. It's all sacred to a god, doing the whole thing, performing, being in the audience, getting drunk. Everything that was involved is ritual. So that's ceremony, Yeah. right? But so is sacrifice. Right. What they don't really have so much of is, is they do have this, but it's it's a bit dicey, is private ceremonies, like what you guys are doing, mm. where you're not part of the city-state in public doing stuff. You're like this little group that goes off into the woods and makes a campfire and does some invocations. Mm. That would have been regarded as quite um, sinister and suspicious back in those days. But that's just an interesting thing to put ancient context, right? Yeah, I, th- I think of it in... So, uh, one of the things I, I said early on to the pilgrimages, we started with a ceremony conducted by a, a druid in London, in this, just out from Tower Hill, and I can't remember the name of it, St... I have to look it up. There's a, a kind of a, a broken-down church, presumably got bombed. 
just outside Tail, about half half a thirty minutes or so from it, or fifteen minutes. We had a lovely ceremony there, and what I said was that was the start of our ceremony. We are now basically in ceremony until we mm. finish it in Edinburgh. We're on six, seven week ceremony. We're in ceremonial space. So all of that that you're talking about, everything that we did, was in the context of right. ceremony. Now I I also think of it in terms of when I when I uh, about. 15, 16 years ago, when I went out to uh, Arizona to look at some of the Native American ceremonies there, like the Yaki deer dances that come in in Easter into the heart of Tucson. The people that are dancing in those and the clowns and the ceremonial stuff that happens for three days and nights, even when there's no one there in in the centre, you know, three o'clock in the morning, they're still enacting stuff. Those people have been out in the desert for four or five weeks doing ceremony. So... If that ceremony is pretty intense, what have they been doing out there that that's prepared? That's their private ceremony for public, and that's that's how I sort of felt that this was. We were doing this, these ceremonies and and the walking itself and the being in that ceremonial space in order to come into a performance space in a certain open, vulnerable, real, raw space, and that was part of the performance. That the performances were improvised mostly. So what is it to to speak your truth from that space? From a space where you've been you're you're connected to something, in this case nature, in this case the land, in this case fire, in this case air or water, and to speak that in public in a way that isn't filtered. But without that that pilgrimage or without those ceremonies, I don't think we you know, I I see ceremony and pilgrimage as very much breaking you down in some ways. That's its point is to mm. open you up and challenge you. So you become more faced with your shadow side and you have to cope with that. And then you come out in the public and you you speak from that truth. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's kind of... That's where I see it as, as, as coming from. How much... Do you think because you have you have quite an intense you know view of of what you're doing there, and mm-hmm. I can imagine that that to the degree to which you're having a successful pilgrimage, you're getting freaked out and intense, yeah. and uh, you know you're you're not just like chilling, you know quite <laughs> quite the opposite. You're yeah. you're going, undergoing something very intense, but you're doing it with a bunch of kind of people you've just met who are all coming from completely different perspectives, and probably they all have a different idea of what it is you're supposed to be doing. It's not like you're a bunch of medieval Christian pilgrims going to the shrine of Saint such a body where you're all on the same page you all know what's going on and you go and do it it's like this kind of much more um, messy modern scenario yeah. where it's a kind of dilettantish spirituality and everyone comes together so how did that work? did you guys manage to create something kind of collectively powerful? or was it a bit more about a bunch of individuals or little kind of mini groups having experiences together would I, you say? I, I think it was more the, the sec- I mean I think there was something very powerful I think it, I think we all went through powerful journeys. Part of part of the challenge was on the inner and outer. We talked about this a lot. You've got your inner world, which is your imagination and your spirituality, and the outer world, which is the actual. How do you actually get up and get on with twenty other people you haven't really met before? Mm. Both of those have challenges in in the pilgrimage and in this sense. So there was that physical challenge of just how do you get on with those people. And like you say, there is, in a sense, there is a common goal, which is to get to COP. But we don't necessarily all have the common beliefs in that. It's not like we have an absolute belief. We, we all have different things that we're bringing to the table. Some of us have, like, one pilgrim that we picked up in uh, Lancashire, I think. I can't remember because I can't always remember where we picked people up. A guy called Rod, who's a, his job is looking at researching at how do you how do you retain water in the peats in the peat districts, you know, where peat is to stop flooding, and you know, very scientific, very thorough knowledge of that. And then you have other people who are XR who really understand the system, and you have other other people a bit like me who are coming at it more from theatre and going, well, how do we communicate that? So there's there's that challenge. How do you, how do you all get on in that way? And yes, I think in the ceremonies, it, what was interesting is there were some ceremonies we had, but we had the ceremonies led by people outside of the group. I found those interesting because I was like, well, well, how does a druid lead a ceremony on on uh, in a Dragon Hill in in Uffington? Some of us, some of our group reacted against that 
and we're like, get these druids out of here. We're trying to save the planet, or what? What was the? Uh, I think what they what they reacted against is structure. Right. We had a lot of oh. we, we had a lot of w- w- witches and wiccans who just didn't like structure. Who just yeah. didn't like organized anything. It seemed to me, or didn't like the. Which was admittedly you know, the highfalutin words that maybe druids would use. But of course for the druids that's important. You know, these things are important. So there was some bit of tension there. So within our own private ceremonies then, for me it became a bit more about self-expression. Which I think is a very Western, yeah. modern Western notion. Totally. And for me, I found that quite odd. Because my experience of ceremony is out in the in Arizona in which the ceremonies are really kind of like no this is how you do it it's tough this is how you're going to get access to that realm it has to be held in that way and so yeah so for me I came with it with that somebody else with that and we had to find a negotiated position of what does that mean so at times I felt our ceremonies leaked energy and at other times it, it, it had something there was something there there was something collectively that we did find a you mm. know, a, a the phrase that came up a lot was a phrase called re-indigenization so there is this sense that in the the west in Europe we've lost, in England we've lost all of our a lot of our folk traditions are not really continuous they've been cut off somewhere in the states the Native Americans and in um, South America more or less they just about managed to get the thread and now they're starting to fan the flames of them. There's something different there. If you're tr- we're struggling to find what does it mean to do ceremony? How do we do ceremony? Can we, do, you know, can we have the druidic ceremonies, which are kind of reinvented anyway? For sure. Does that mean anything? Or, what, you know, what is ceremony to us? And I'm struggling with that on this pilgrimage between, I think ceremony should be like this. I think it should be quite intense and quite held. But also, you know... Fooling is part of what we were doing and is part of all ceremonies there. So the fool, what's that energy that, that says, yeah, yeah, don't take yourself too seriously, you know? Because yeah. if you do, you've kind of lost it a bit. I mean, if you get rid of the fool from your ceremonies, you've lost it. So what does that mean? So this phrase of kind of re-indigenization became very important to us. Is how, do we, how do we either reinvent or refine ceremony that is of this land, that is of this people, that is important and strong and deep why isn't it why shouldn't that just be Christianity goes back 2000 years in this land roughly people have been doing these Christian ceremonies here since you know at least the sort of 3rd century 2nd century it's a lot of it's pagan you know yeah I mean and it's it's a direct (laughs) even though when you go to church on Sunday in England now most places it's just like four 80-year-old women sitting in there and the priest looking rather forlorn and there's not a lot of, like, mojo in the air. You don't feel the presence of Christ. Nobody's going to, like, feel the spirit. It's all very polite. But there's still... There's, there's some kind of ceremonial continuity there. Yeah, I think, I think probably because so many of us had, had, you know, I think that you, you don't feel the spirit. It's dead. Or you get the revivalist where the spirit is like, whoa, crazy, man. Yeah, so, they, they have the crazy spirit, but they also believe that... Uh, Noah literally, <laughs> no literally is going to heaven, heaven and they're all going to die. Yeah, um, yeah. well, funnily enough, we actually got blessed in Birmingham Cathedral, Carlisle Cathedral. Uh, the, the most amazing one is Carlisle. Carlisle. That is unbelievable. Tell us about Carlisle Cathedral. So Carlisle Cathedral is sort of in two bits. So there's an uh, old, old bit, and then half of that got... I can't remember why it got chopped off. I think they rebuilt it, but they decided not to rebuild the old. And um, I think it's like 11th or 12th century. And then they built another one on, which is much more gothic. And they were both of these side by side. So it's like walking through time when you walk between them. And they're two very distinct uh, parts of the cathedral. And it's quite small. It's not very big. And yet the gothic part is really gothic. Really quite... Wow. And the organ, when we came in, they just finished a, a service. And the organist... I don't know if they're playing for us. Playing this really... Bom, 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 kind of deep tones while we wait while the um, our bishop was waiting you know to, to welcome us and, and explain to us about this cathedral I saw organ, massive organ sound in such a small space it was really quite um, overpowering 
So we got blessings in these and the United Reformed Churches, uh, as well as a Buddhist um, blessing and sort of just an esoteric blessing at the, the place called the Monastery in Manchester, which was that was well esoteric. <laughs> can you um, can you elaborate on that at all? I can indeed. So the monastery was an old, um, I think it's a Fran- Franciscan monastery. But it was a group, apparently, of an order that was sort of only answerable to the Pope. So it was already pretty kind of esoteric. And all of the architecture is, you know, when you, when you look at the uh, explanations they have up, it's all of that um, sacred geometry and sacred lines and on the ley lines. And there's a well there and the, the door has the kind of green man and the Michael and the Mary and the... just everything about it it's now it's been um, no longer a a monastery it's now been taken over and is run as a kind of healing centre non-denominational which now is even more into that whole understanding of the almost Da Vinci Code kind of esoteric you know Rosalind Chapel kind of they really understand what they're doing the entranceway now has a uh, upside down um, pyramid pointing down at you and it's yeah it's quite amazing and um, yeah we, we got a, a blessing in there it was one of, one of the most moving moments for me of the pilgrimage who blessed you? it was a woman so she kind of helps to run it and she was explaining to us all the the, the ways that Manchester is just built on you know like people say Washington DC is and London is on all these sacred geometry lines and how all the lines run through it and when you see the, the maps that she has it's like whoa yeah okay that and um, she took water from the well and just we were sitting around in a circle she, she brought us up and just it was the most amazing thing someone looking in your eye in that ceremonial space and just blessing you as a pilgrim because of what you were doing on a chair that was sort of an intersection of several ley lines that, whoa okay yeah that's 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 pretty cool. So you got some earth mystery juice yeah, in definitely, Manchester. Definitely. So did you, um, I mean, to put, the, to put the question sort of bluntly, did you guys uh, magically contribute to the amelioration of global climate change? <laughs> well, who knows? Like, like Chairman Mao said in the French Revolution, it's too early to tell, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, that's what we were trying to do. There was, there was, so there was a, an earthly aspect to it, which is... We're producing something to take to COP and to be in COP and to be showing our work. And then, obviously, when we got to COP, we all went off in in many ways, separate ways, to do our own different things. And there were some amazing ceremonies there from uh, indigenous leaders from um, South America that that I saw that were just mind-blowing. But, yeah, I mean, the point of it was to, to walk the spine of Albion and to energetically awaken the spine of Albion, awaken the country, to wake the country up. So there was both the interaction with communities which we were making along the way. And it was listening to the land. It was very interesting. It was listening rather than, you know, we weren't going to protest. Right. We were going to listen and to talk. And that was quite, that became quite interesting to me because it was quite disarming if you're talking to someone you may not agree with. And what you're saying is, I haven't got a position on that. I mean, I have personally, but as a pilgrim, what I'm doing is listening. And it means that people often open up. You have a much more interesting discussion with something that could have been just confrontational. So there's that aspect. But there was definitely a, a sense that for ourselves, processing uh, things through, through pilgrimage, that we would expect to change and be different and have a different relationship to the earth ourselves... And therefore, coming back into community, have a difference. Mm. But also, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was quite for many of us. It was clear that the actual acts of doing ceremony along the way was was a kind of waking up. Jolie would say that she said sometime that there's talk that in World War Two, the thing that won the war was the magicians in England. You know, this is one of those esoteric myths yeah uh, which you know you will have heard about a lot of people would have heard agent 666 yeah you know maybe it's true i don't know but this this sense of trying to do something to to waken up 
ourselves. And I, I'm I'm becoming more convinced of that. I, I think that the, what, the way out of this problem is that we have to wake up. Uh, by which I mean not being woke, although that's you know part of it, I think. But we have to we have to wake up to the reality of who we are, of what we are. We have to wake up to reality of what Gaia is, what our relationship is. That we are under a spell. You know, we're inspelled by modern society. It's a thought system. It's a paradigm. It is not the only system. We just have bought into it and been and been made to buy into it, and it's supported by media and you know societal norms. It is destroying us. Yeah. You know. So we have to think differently. And for me, that you know, part of ma- magic for me is thought. Everything starts in the realm of ideas. Think differently and then act differently. You know, that's, mm. so I think that, that that element of doing that, either for ourselves or hopefully, you know, I don't know how those things work. I don't. Maybe they don't. Maybe they do. I don't know. But it it, it certainly affects me and changes me, and then my interaction changes other people or not. Does it actually have an effect there? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But the, it was designed to do that. That was part of the pilgrimage. Was it was a it wasn't that people have asked me at times what is the difference between a walk and a pilgrimage and a walk is just a walk a pilgrimage is you have a spiritual point to it like an intention an intention yeah aims and intentions for the whole thing and you know daily and for yourself and for sort of outside of yourself as well so when you got to to Glasgow mm-hmm. and I want to ask you about what cup was like in a minute but before we do that um did you guys have like a closing? Did you end the ceremony? The, yeah. uh, the pilgrimage. Boom, we're done. Yeah. So we we finished the actual pilgrimage part with the ceremony at a place called Three Hairs Community, which is just outside Edinburgh. Yeah. How appropriate. I know. Really weird. Eh? That's an esoteric uh, reference for people who live around where we live. I'm yeah. Just leave it at that. I know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I won't mention anymore. I know. I did notice that. I, I just at that point, I'm just like, yeah. These coincidences just they happen all the time, and of course it'd be Three Hairs. Yeah. Um, so we did a, a ceremony that Jolie knows from kind of I think grief ceremonies from like well death ceremonies where you kind of take someone through death and then you come out which is using the elements to bless you and swaddling you in cloth and also sitting in circle and people saying nice things about you which is really lovely I mean you know about what they've seen in the in the in the pilgrimage mm. which, which is really lovely so we did that in a bell tent so like a TB with so we did that it's about a three hour ceremony so we very consciously had opened it and closed it as the pilgrimage part then the next part was so what then happens it's then preparing for performance so there's still still very much elements of the pilgrimage there but the actual thing was clearly this is a, a contained unit of you started here you walked you stopped here and now we go into Edinburgh as a, as a different the next stage so to set the scene for the next day, what was COP like? Could you get anywhere near the the sort of um, like ziggurat where the leaders of the world were <laughs> planning whatever human sacrifices they were planning? planning. <laughs> yeah, planning, planning to help the oil and coal industry as much as possible. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, we stopped in Edinburgh to develop the show a bit. Yeah. We stayed in a place called the Salisbury Centre, which was actually um, set up by Sufi... Um, Mm. Uh, don't know what they're called Sufi advocates Torica <laughs> okay so uh, as as not as specifically Sufi but as in another um, you yeah. know non-denominational centre for support of these sorts of things which is very nice so we were there for three days to develop the show uh, and then we went when we actually stayed in a place called Kelburn Castle the other side we were on the west coast which is a mad castle that's that's as the stories of in and of itself so we were there that was our staging post for going into COP so it's like a 50 minute um, train journey and part of the point of the Kelburn the people that were Kelburn were indigenous leaders uh, we had a Mexican youth group Guatemalans definitely a Kenyan some Bangladeshi Nigerian I think delegates who were staying there and the idea of it was to help these people have a have a voice you know, to, to the, together they have more of a voice than if they're disparate and separate. And we, for some reason, were sort of within that within that crowd. Uh, so yeah, cop. 
Ah, no. I mean, uh, we, our group did actually get to present something in the green zone. That was after I'd, I'd left, because I left early, because we originally were meant to be doing that on the 8th of November. So I'd planned my travel and coming back for the 9th, and then it all got delayed and was the 12th. And a group of us, so we kind of split at about the 8th, we all fractured. Some of us went home, some stayed in Kelburn, and about six went off to complete the last two chakra ceremonies on the, the um, brow and the crown chakra um, up through Scotland. Why why these uh, chakra points are to do with the crossing of the Ellen and Bolinus lines, the male and female lines, supposedly doused, you know, these are where the chakra points are. Doused by whom? Well, good, good question. <laughs> I can't answer that, not by me. Uh, but yeah, that, that's the idea, is where these points kind of meet, they're the kind of chakra points of the, of the country. Yeah. Um, or at least of that line. Um, so they managed to get into to the green zone and present something. What's there. the green zone? Okay, so the, there's the blue zone, which is the ziggurats and the, you know, where they plot the destruction of, of the world. And the green zone is sort of where other delegates managed to get in and have various meetings and presentations. And then there's the op. Now, I think of it, I was told, and it's very much like, there's a bit like an environmental or green Edinburgh festival. So if you've ever been to the festival, there's the official blue zone there's the kind of uh, fringe festival which is the green zone and then there's the festival then there's all the stuff that happens outside of it yeah so in terms of uh, cop there's to get into any of the green or blue zones you have to a you have to have permission and you have to have all the you know now vaccine passports and all that sort of stuff or whatever uh outside of that there's a load of stuff going on demonstrations every day, marches, performances in, in sort of little spaces here and there. So stuff that I went to, for example, one that I really like, which I'll talk about now, which is this, in the, the uh, tram, uh, tramway, uh, Glasgow Theatre, it's kind of art centre, they hosted the Minga Indigena. And the Minga Indigena is a kind of group of indigenous leaders or tribes from... I think Amazon up through South America, I think actually up in Canada as well, and then in some of the islands. So it's that sort of area. And the idea is that rather than them trying to be represented singly, as a group, they get more chance of a voice. And they had come, there were about 20 of them, and I think there's others that hadn't quite yet arrived. You know, some of them had spent three days travelling by canoe to get to a town, to get taken to somewhere where they could fly. And they did a fire ceremony in, in the tramway. And one of the things they said at the start of that ceremony is, this is historical because none of their ancestors had ever set foot in this country. This is the first time they come to this country and their ceremony starts with them asking permission to be able to do the ceremony from the spirit world. They talk about, uh, and then they do their ceremony, which is so intense compared to what, you know, when I compare, this is like, this now is ceremony. This is like massively intense, really deep trance stakes, really uh, rattling and drumming and storytelling and very clearly in the inner world, in their representations. And yet in a public space, right? Yeah, in a public space, yeah. With an audience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And... It was unusual because I don't think they weren't necessarily all from the same tradition. So they were clearly making it up as they went along with a clear one shaman or medicine man kind of leading it and the others kind of going, well, okay, what do we do here? But also each being given a chance to, to, to speak into this situation, either in Spanish or mostly in Spanish with translator uh, or in, in sometimes in, in their own sort of tribal tongue. They also did in, uh, where was it? Uh, what was it called? I can't remember its name, but it was part of where the Letters to the Earth were based, um, actually in Glasgow. So the other one was in Glasgow, but it was the shabby side of the river. And then in the posh side of the river, there was another space, which was an arts space, where they did storytelling. And, st- and that really showed me that actually we were quite on the same track, that that ceremony was really calling in the spirits and really intense. Their storytelling had an element of that, but they weren't calling in the spirits, and yet they were rattling and telling stories and clearly very lifted into this world, 
but without it being quite as intense. And the storytelling was mostly songs. They were listening to each other and they were just telling stories through mm. songs and they were improvising it and making it up. And then at the end, one of them sort of gave a very heartfelt speech, just saying, we've come here, we've you know, made, created these stories for you. We've come with an open heart. We've come with love. And our message is that the earth is telling us these are problems and the answer is to refine that consciousness to refine your connection with mother earth to refine your connection with each other to refine love to refine you know quite quite amazing and i'm not doing them justice because for me sitting there as a westerner i'm thinking their understanding of consciousness and awareness is so beyond us it, it it felt to me they weren't they weren't coming and admonishing us although they should be in many ways, but it was almost like a parent to a child saying, you've lost your spirituality, you know? This is what we have. It, it, it almost felt that, like that in a very gentle, heart-opening way, just saying, you know, as a lot of people say, is it's not about saving the earth. It's humanity. Not the, the earth is going to survive. The question is, does humanity? That's yeah. actually the question we're faced with. Yeah. yeah. I think this is a question that... Um, it gets there's the, there's this certain kind of um, bullshit that creeps into a lot of discourse around climate change and stuff like that. That it's about saving the earth, and I think that's that really is bullshit. And we and we should just own up to the fact that what we're worried about, if and we should be worried about, it's our first job to worry about. Is our grandchildren drowning or dying or yeah. you know whatever, having to migrate to somewhere where they they have like loaded machine guns on the fence saying don't even come try to come yeah. here we're worried about people yes we are also worried about the other life forms on this mm. planet but um the planet has had major extinction events where yeah. like 95 plus percent of all species were wiped out in like one day that's happened repeatedly and life came back better than before <laughs> yeah every time right it's probably happened more times than we know about, but that's at least the ones we know about for sure. Um, so we're not worried about the planet. And we don't need to be worried about the planet. Everything on this planet, even the plutonium and the lead and the crazy long-chain chemicals that kill everything that we create, comes from this planet anyway. Mm. It's not like we're bringing in something that isn't from the yeah. planet that's going to kill the planet. It's like it's all the planet. But um, we're making it into a planet that humans can't live on, or at least not 6 billion humans, 8 billion, 10 billion humans. Um, so anyway, I find that um, a little disingenuous. I think we're lying to ourselves a lot of the time. If we say we really care about the planet and that's the message and we got to protect the planet, it's, it's like, no, 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 come on. Like, we want to protect our grandkids. And that's a normal thing for any species to want to do. Yeah, I think there's... It's like an th- honest goal. I think with indigenous peoples, they they actually hold both of those things. Yeah. So they talk about... Uh, also, another ceremony at Kelburn was about the children's fire. I got very much into fire keeping um, during this, and so I got very attached to fire as an element. And the children's fire is in a story as elders from somewhere a long time ago sat around a fire and they said, how we make decisions? And they came up with this thing that we will not make any decision, pass any law or do anything that affects, will affect the seventh generation down. Children of the seventh generation. We won't do that. It's not right. So mm. that's how we make laws. And you know, we 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 agree to do this in the fire, and the, you know, then the fire. I've got a bit of this um, ash because I'm now learning to do fire keeping. That the ash gets taken from that and put into the next fire, so all these fires are connected. Now I think there is that. So there's definitely this within the indigenous population. There is this generational, but they also have such a connection with the, the natural world that for them. It, it, and species that it, it isn't as simple as for us. I think that's a very Western thing. I think it's very valid because I think you're right that there's, you know, this is what I, I find with myself and with a lot of Westerns. We are we are really narcissistic because it's all about us. So you know, a lot of our ceremonies are all about us. Whereas Indigenous ceremonies, they're not about you. They're about your community and they're about seventh generation down. But yes, we need to start thinking of that. And even just starting to think that way about humans would be good. Yeah. I because 
it's something I, I, you know, I, I'm not perfect. One of the things that came out of the pilgrimage is we don't know the answer and we're not perfect. We all do things. We all fly. We all, you know, I have coal in my heater. We all do things that we know we shouldn't. And we're all having to make changes and we're having to, you know, continue to make changes. But one of the questions I put is, do we love our children? Do we love our grandchildren? Will we love our great-grandchildren? What are they going to look back and think of us? And I don't know if we do. Because if we did, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. You know, do, we say we love them, but how many... I mean, not necessarily us, but as a, as a, as a Western world in particular, and, and that, I mean, is that's what we've exported to now the East and everywhere. It's, it's all based on this kind of Western notion of work and productivity and taking stuff out of the earth. And If we really loved our children, we would, now that we have this knowledge we would immediately stop doing what we're doing and we'd stop and we'd have a think and we'd change. Yeah. And, you know, we've just had 18 months where we could have done that. Yeah. We've just had a pause. You see now that that is all the system's trying to reimpose itself. That was the perfect chance to go, let's redesign our cities. Let's help everybody get solar power. Let's redesign our, our power sources, you know. Mm. Perfect opportunity to do that. And we didn't take it. We didn't even have an inkling of taking it. <laughs> exactly. We yeah. didn't even, it wasn't even like, oh, this is a great thing. It's like, all right, let's get back as soon as we can, you know, to normal, the normal. Yeah. But normal was not working. I mean, we know that normal was not working yeah. for most people, for, certainly on the planet it wasn't. I mean, even within our, you know. So one of, one of the things uh, just sort of on, on that that really struck me is one of the first days in Colburn we were having a water ceremony and there was us pilgrims. It was a very middle-class pilgrimage, you know, Henley to Edinburgh, very middle-class. And we were talking, sort of saying prayers over the water, and there was a Kenyan who it came to it, all going, oh, yeah, the water and the rain and this and that. And the Kenyan's prayer was, that my people are dying from drought and the animals are dying. And that was a real, for me, like a real wake-up call of like, yes, we had walked 500 miles, but this guy's coming in because... There's literally a drought that's killing. You know, we are not on the cutting edge of yet of climate crisis. We know it's happening. Our weather patterns are changing, but we are protected from it at the moment. Yeah. But the warning signs are there from communities that don't. This is the whole, yeah. you know, promotion of indigenous populations. They are seeing it happen. They are seeing the rising water levels. They're seeing the crop failures. But we're seeing it in the West as well. You know, like Germany, floods in Germany. Yeah. The, the fires in it is happening we are seeing it we're also seeing it in terms of mi- literally millions of um, refugees or yeah. uh, migrants showing yeah. up it isn't that migrants wouldn't be coming for other reasons anyway they've, they've been mi- migrants coming to Europe migrants coming to the US forever yeah. but statistically there's been a, just in the last 10 years there's been a massive great jump you can't account for that just be like everyone decided, oh, I just wanted, I just fancy going somewhere really cold and slaving away to some shitty job to make enough money to send back to my family. Yeah. They all, everyone in Africa decided that at yeah. once. And then you're, Syria has had four years of drought in a row or more now. And everyone had to move to the city and that precipitated as part of what led to the civil war. Like there's all this kind of climate migration already happening. Mm. And um, it's a really bad sign that instead of that being a fire under the ass of these politicians, like, whoa, we've really got to deal with this. Because when when enough people start are on the move, you get like end of the Roman Empire type mm. scenarios where something's got to give. They're doing things like stoking the fires of uh, jingoism and uh, xenophobia for political gain, for yeah. short-term political yeah, gain. For short-term political gain. And, yeah. and not saying what's really going on. There's a bunch of uh, Syrians who've just shown up in our country. Wouldn't the next thing to be why? Mm. Why did they leave mm. Syria? No, that you don't ask those kind of questions. You just say they're they're migrants. They're coming here to steal our jobs. Yeah. That'll do. That's a good. I, I actually think in this context, that's almost the definition of evil. I think that is. I think I'm starting to see what evil is. That is evil because they know that's not true. But like you say, for short political gain, and this is even beyond what it was sort of in the 60s, 70s, that kind of thing. This is, we're talking about potential extinction events of humanity and they're playing these, uh, I'm going to swear now. Go on. Fucking stupid games. 
a time, you know, it's always been terrible than playing them. But this is life and death. Yeah. On a mass scale, and they're playing these stupid games. That, that's evil. That's evil. Uh, it makes me think, I was, I was speaking to one of the Bangladeshi um, delegates, one like going back to Kelvin. Bangladesh, very poor, very low-lying, very, low very subject to flooding. Very subject to flooding. And he was talking about, there's a secondary issue that they are, that his NGO is trying to bring to the table. The first is, you, you're getting some climate change happening there, you've got to feed people and work out what you do on the coasts, okay? They can't even get the money to do that. But he says, the problem is, what their forecasts show is, 20 million people will migrate inland as a result of that. They're not even beginning to work out what the hell they do when that happens. So there's this... We're not even beginning to do the first case that we actually know about and that we all know we should be doing. We're not finding the money for that. We're not taking that seriously. Yeah. But there's a secondary thing, which is even worse, which is what you're talking about. If 20 million people migrate into Bangladesh, that's going to push people out. It's going to destabilise the borders. You destabilise that region. You start destabilising India. You start, you know, once you destabilise India, Pakistan. China, Pakistan, you know, that all of these areas have, which are, which become global. You know, we, it's not that we can, we can exclude ourselves from that. Yeah. As it much as would people, affect us. As much as people would like to imagine they can. Yeah. And to make it, to bring it home to Europeans, maybe who might be tempted to think, oh, well, yeah, that kind of stuff happens to brown people. If if it, not even the worst climate models that NASA has come up with, but the kind of like medium, like th- this is very likely, but it's not the worst thing that could happen statistically. In the next 30 years, like within our lifetime, God willing, large parts of Spain and Portugal will not be inhabitable mm. for at least half the year. Like it'll be so hot and in some places so humid that humans will literally die if they're even outdoors. So so what happens to the population of those places? That's millions and millions of Europeans. Yeah. So, well, they, they, they can move to France and Germany and Italy and so on and so forth. But that suddenly yeah. France and Germany and Italy are going all like these bloody Spaniards coming here taking our jobs. Yeah. And then that whole thing <laughs> starts up again and, and, you know, meanwhile, everyone's a little bit poorer and systems are a little bit more strained because of climate yes. change. yeah. Um, and crops failing. And yeah, so like h- huge amounts of goodwill are needed. That's for sure. For the, for that kind of scenario, all globally, it seems to yeah. me, for that kind of scenario not to be a grievous shit show that our distant ancestors, if there are any, would look back on and be like, that was the most appalling <laughs> time in human history. Yeah, you had you had from the nineteen seventies. You had all basically that science. You knew what was going on. Fifty years went by. You did. Fuck all. Okay, but then you really knew what was going on. Then and you then had you another did twenty years, years. <laughs> yeah, and you did nothing. That's where it, where a culture of we're all in this together, like really, like a culture of connectedness. Mm. It sounds wishy washy, but that that is so crucial. It's more crucial. It's huge amounts of planning and decisive yet full of integrity. People in the right holding the right levers of power yeah. would be immensely helpful. Yeah. And, you know, huge mass movements of organized people who know how to do stuff, getting together and, like, making stuff happen is hugely essential. But also a cultural shift where your reaction to the, the starving guy with nothing except the clothes on his back showing up and his million friends that you don't speak their language showing up in your town and being like, hey, guys, we're here. Yeah. Basically, we're here and everyone is going to have to take a, a hit on their standard of living so that we can all stay alive. Those kind of choices will have be made all over the world. And my fear is that people will be like, I'd much rather shoot you than, than, than see my standard of yeah. living take a hit. Yeah. And your kids. Yeah. And my political leaders will we'll do that. tailor make yeah. a narrative whereby I can feel okay about doing yeah. that. Yeah. That's that's a fear, isn't it? I think there's there's... I mean, I, I, this, that makes me, makes me think of a couple of things. It's like, if you don't, it's that thing, if you don't want refugees in your country, don't go and bomb that country, because most refugees come from that. It's like, and we bomb it, and this is what you're talking about, is that there's a disconnect between, so we bomb these countries, and then three years later we get the refugees, and there's no one in power saying, oh, well, that's kind of our fault, we did destroy the homes. Mm. And we, on the whole, 
in the West are like, oh, that's good, that absolves us from, because actually there's a time gap there and we've moved on from it. Well, we've moved on from the war, so you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's no longer our fault. And that's similar with the climate, because a lot of the reasons for the effects of climate change not with us is because we've exported, well, we exported our population when we had a population growth, you know, to America and Australia, so we got away with that. Well, in the we, colonies. In the colonies, yeah. Former colonies. Exactly, former colonies. And we've also, basically by doing that, we've been extracting all of their wealth into us, which means we'll quite happily take down the... I, was, I, think, I think it was it, was it, um, it was in Bangladesh, wasn't it, where the, the, all the woods were taken down and then the, the floods came down because the woods been sort of taken down for us, effectively. So we are creating these problems and it's starting to come back to us. You know, it's karmic, it's taken a long while, but it's starting to come back to us, but it comes back to us in the form of refugees and things. So there is solving the, the issues at source. You know, starting to change how we are at source. Mm. I also, you know, you talk about the 70s, I, I've often wondered, even when, it was quite a long time ago, what would it have been, you know when Jimmy Carter put, put like solar panels on the White House? And if at that point, the Western world had gone green and gone, yeah, that's the way to go. Imagine the difference in world history. This is what I mean by thought patterns. Imagine if at that point Carter had got a second term in office and the rest of the Western world had followed the American lead on that and we gradually divested from oil and, and coal. We wouldn't have had, arguably, Saddam Hussein. We wouldn't have had Iraq 1 and 2. We wouldn't have had those dictators because we wouldn't be propping them up. We wouldn't be giving them chemical weapons because we wouldn't give a damn about them because we don't want their oil those regimes would have had their revolutions and would have eventually, not, not having weapons from us, probably they'd have found their own... It may not have been democracy, but they'd have found a balance, probably without terrible tyrants, maybe some with tyrants, maybe some without, maybe some... I don't know, but it would have been very different because we wouldn't have been meddling there. The, what a shame we didn't do that <laughs> back then. Yeah. It almost happened as well. I mean, not yet. There's a complex thing you're talking about, but there was... Um, I read a big, long read in the New York Times about this, um, which was like a big, big research project, but basically some climate scientists in the 70s who were on boards, scientific boards in the White House, figured out the greenhouse effect. We already knew about the greenhouse Anyone who's ever had a greenhouse knew about the greenhouse effect, but then kind of scaled it up and right. with a very primitive modeling at the time. Went. What was interesting is that this was put to the president at the time, sitting president, and he went, oh, damn, that does sound like something we should do about it. And it quickly spread. It got pretty popular. This was this is, you know, Al Gore, who once okay. ran for yeah, president. Yeah. He actually was in on this, like, right at the beginning. He was a big advocate for, we got to take this seriously, so oh. credit to him for that. And um, it wasn't a Democrat thing. Republicans were, like, all about it. They were like, yeah, damn, we got to do this. Then I think the people who were really informed about climate science, like, for example oil companies who really have their finger on the pulse of this science yes. you know what I mean like the tobacco industry did with cancer yeah yeah. <laughs> uh, they've done their own research <laughs> um, they yeah. went oh damn yeah. you know like we gotta we gotta have a talk with people another thing that happened is that whole freon gas ozone hole layer oh, yeah. thing came up okay. yeah. that kind of like took front page and according to the analysis of this article that actually made everyone think like oh well we solved that problem uh-huh. took about five years now we've got new stuff in our refrigerators We've healed the planet. Uh. Problem solved. Let's go Reagan, Thatcher, New World Order. So there was this chance that this slightly more complex and hard to get your head around problem of gradual mean temperature rise leading to all kinds of unpleasant stuff happening could (laughs) could have become a major driving force in American politics that they were taking seriously in the 70s. Back when we had a population, the very you know by today's standards, like half the population that we have now, could have done something. There. Mm. So there's a couple of uh, other things to that that makes sense. First of all, one of the discussions we had because we were having these sort of discussions, and I threw it in as a sort of because one of the accusations we had at times was, oh, you're sort of part of the glo- you know supporting the global elite in their new world order plans to you know enforce. Climate, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the the new climate um, world dictatorship that's going to take away our rights and yeah, sterilize exactly. everyone. Yeah, yeah. So 
one of the things that I have been interested in is that there is, and this is true, there are, you know, the world is not a stable unit. It does have pole shifts. And it might be that we are just going through one of those climate shifts. Now, clearly within that, mankind is also adding to that. So even if that's the case, the answer is not to carry on as before. It's like, hey, we're going through, we're going to be going through a really rough climate period for 100 years because poles are shifting and stuff shifting. Probably best to try and dampen the, you know, like, you know, like if you're being dampened down the fires a bit and let's try and yeah. sort of be a bit soft on the earth because we might push it over the edge even more. So that, that's my reaction to that is, yeah, that even, even more so. It, it might well be true when you look at the um, shifts that the earth does. Of course, the earth goes through these cycles. But if it's going through a cycle, pushing it, you know, adding to that, probably not wise. This idea that the, the Earth is just naturally warming now because it would be anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, maybe. Lots of people say that or, or say things like, yes, but what about the sun and sunspots activities? My feeling toward that is the same as uh, my feeling toward people who say COVID is all a hoax, mm. right? It's like I'm open to the idea because I can definitely see the vested interests that have an interest in everyone taking their products to save themselves from COVID. Uh, Show me just one piece of reputable scientifically based data for that counter argument that I can hold up against like this gigantic consensus of thousands, tens of thousands, sometimes trained scientists who are all kind of in agreement. And I've yet to see that with COVID. Yeah. I've pretty much yet to see that with man-made climate change. Like, there was a a, a big, really well-funded climate change research uh, project, I think, at Berkeley in California. This is about 10 years ago now. That was funded directly by the Koch brothers, who are these two oh, yeah, American... Yeah, right wing. Uh, yeah. Well, oil barons right. in America, yeah. who believe in just ultra-capitalism. And they, they were funding this this climate skeptic scientist. But the, the, unfortunately for them, he really was a scientist. And so he, he took the money and built like the best climatological model anyone had done yet with sensor readings that, you know, integrated into his models that no one had integrated yet. And he was like, oh, damn, anthropogenic climate change is totally real. It's actually probably worse than anyone thinks. Nice. We really have to do something about this. Okay. He was then dumped from the payroll, but... Um, this is the kind of thing that makes me wonder whether all these kind of alternative theories might not be right, even though scientific consensus has been known to get stuff wrong in the past. Yeah, yeah, sure. totally. And again, it's a kind of paradigm shift to that. And there's, there's, you know, going going back to that kind of esoteric spiritual thing, there's also quite a lot of thought amongst some new agey, or pro, I'd call probably um, neo-new agey, I guess. Ooh, another, yeah, newer called, age. New, yeah, newer, newer age is that the earth is going through, the earth and humanity is going through a consciousness change. And that this is part of the birth pangs of it. Which, again, doesn't, it doesn't mean you don't do anything about that. The birth pangs of it are, are do we survive? Do we survive the birth? And the birth of, the, of that into, I guess, the age of Aquarius, which is, you know, this idea mm. of moving from Pisces to Aquarius, is we have to learn lessons. And the lessons are a connection. The lessons are that we are connected to the earth, that we borrow the earth that we are dependent on the earth that we're dependent on each other and that that idea intrigues me a lot so something you were, you were saying about you know this interconnection and, and do we go into our little tribes and have machine guns point yeah that's what's happening on one level but on another level and this is the other interesting thing that i think a lot of us are at cop what came out of cop in the media was blah 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 <laughs> very true and also most people go oh it's a waste of time my experience of COP was actually quite amazing. I, I got, I made connections. There are people there making connections. There are these indigenous leaders coming and affecting me. And then this is on a personal level, a bit like the pilgrims, you know, I'm talking to people there and affecting them. But there's also something that happened to me. I don't really do digital things, but I started doing a Facebook thing and I, you know, not hundreds of followers, but 80 people following me. So, there are these connections that are happening in our age. Mm. The question is, do we make those connections quick enough? We have the internet. We can now see what happens on the other side of the world. We can connect with those communities. One of the things that struck me walking up the spine of England is 
everywhere you go, there are communities addressing this issue. There really are. You know, like in, like in our own community, where people are discussing these things and doing active things. The media won't tell you that. For the media, we're all desperate and apart. But when you actually do it, when you actually go into these places, it's happening everywhere. When we find that and see that and connect with that, I think eventually we realise that actually that's the answer. I mean, I think the answer is for us. Yes, like you said, it'd be great if we had leaders that all saw this and did it, but we haven't. So what we have to do is do it anyway. Just stop listening to them. Just ignore them and do it. And hopefully if enough of us ignore them, eventually they're just idiots who have no power and nobody's paying any attention to them. It is that kind of, in a sense, extinction rebellion. And that can be active rebellion or just, we are just going to think differently. We're not going to think in your system anymore. We are going to train ourselves out of that thinking and we will start thinking connection. We will start making connections. We will, we will live differently. We will free ourselves from that mind control and that system of separateness that we have been brought up, up in and that serves their purpose rather than actually our purpose. You know? So that I also have sort of hope in that. The clock's ticking. Do, do we, you know, do we get to that to that tipping point where enough of us are actually just doing that? That, you know, XR's thing is you have to crash the system. I hope we don't have to. I hope that we can find a way of, you know, of of because there are good things in our system as well. You know, they're, they're, I think they're very good things. Can we do it? Mm. Don't know. Don't know. I'm not sure. I'm I, I'm not sure what my experience has done with that. But there are. A lot of very intelligent, good in inverted commas, people trying. And that's a good thing. <laughs> and it's and it's global. It's happening globally. You know, do we do, maybe we get maybe this is the birth of something genuinely quite special and new and this is a birth pang of it. Or maybe it's extinction. <laughs> or maybe it's something in between, you know. Probably something in between. Probably something in between. <laughs> Howard Gayton, stay esoteric. <laughs> Thank you.